More Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website, www.deanbible.org, or you may write to Dean Bible Ministries at 5868 Westheimer, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. That's 5868 W E S T H E I M E R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. A couple of announcements before we begin. I'm sure that many of you are still praying for Ulan and his family. We do not have much more to say. Uh, each day there's a flurry of emails going back and forth between America, Norway, and a few other places. There are a number of things tr- uh, trying to be uh, done on his behalf. We uh, have people in the State Department. We have some people who got some good contacts in, in Congress who are putting pressure on the State Department. We do know that there are some, uh, the State Department is fully aware of his situation, the Consul General in Norway is aware of his situation and is sympathetic to it. He's made application for asylum in Norway, which means he can't do anything to come here right now. And all of this leads to a certain amount of confusion, but we know that the Lord is in control of all the details and will work things out. There are times when he, of course, feels very uh, insecure and uh, a couple of times gets close to punching the old panic button, so we need to keep him and his family in prayer. It's an unstable situation. There's too many things that are going on that we're just uh, unaware of. We're too far from the situation, but we are praying that by the end of this week we will have a a much better uh, grasp of what's going on. And uh, because of the sensitive nature of a number of things that are going on, I am not really free to talk about them. The other announcement that you need to be praying for is that we have looked at another place that has great potential for a meeting place. This place is located just north of Interstate 10 on the east side of the Beltway. That means it's on the inside of the Beltway and it is directly on the Beltway with frontage on the Beltway. It is between I-10 and Hammerley. Hammerley is the first exit off of the Beltway, so you really have to be off the Beltway before you get there. It's on the east side. It is uh, in a sort of an office warehouse place location, and it is currently a some sort of Greek Orthodox church or Eastern Orthodox of some type. That means that that, uh, we wouldn't have to do much to make it usable for our purposes. It's already pretty much built out. There are a few things we would have to do, but the overall expense to get in is less. The overall square footage is not as great as the last place, so that means the uh, overall lease on the property is much less, probably uh, around $4,000 a month as opposed to something closer to fifty-five or 6000 a month. So it's much more uh, something that's much easier for us to accomplish. So keep those in, 
things in prayer. The um, uh, founding committee is going to take a look at it this week. All of us will go over there. We'll work on more details. And by the end of the week, we should have another uh, time and date established for you to go look at the place, for everybody to get an idea of what it's like to drive there, where it's located, and uh, check it out on your own, and then we will go forward. The current lease runs until the end of September, so we wouldn't be moving in until sometime in October or November, but that just gives you a little bit of a time frame. Before we begin our study of the Word this evening, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction on our study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that we have the opportunity to study Your Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that in this church age You have indwelt every single believer with the Holy Spirit. And when we are in fellowship, the Holy Spirit is working in us to produce spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. He is bringing to our memory the things that we have learned. He is teaching us. He is helping us to understand the doctrines that we have studied, and He is helping us to apply them. And through that process, He is producing spiritual growth, the sanctification process. Now, Father, the key to spiritual growth is content. It is Your Word. For You have said that it is Your Word that sets us free, and it is Your Word that is the means of sanctification. So we devote the next 40, 45 minutes or so to the study of Your Word, and we ask that You would guide and direct us as we think about these things and study these truths, that You would make them clear to us for our spiritual edification, our advance and growth in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our studies in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we're in the third letter of seven letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor. As we get into this letter, I want to remind you that there's a structure to each and every one of these short epistles. The function of these epistles is not so much to communicate doctrine for the spiritual life and to help believers understand what it is that God has wrought in the substitutionary spiritual atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, or what God has provided for every believer in the spiritual life, or the mechanics of the spiritual life. These are not epistles in the same sense that the other epistles in the New Testament are epistles. These are congregational evaluation reports. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is giving a checklist of different areas of spiritual growth and application in each one of these congregations, along with an evaluation. That evaluation is then being posted to an angel who is a witness from the heavenly courtroom, from the Supreme Court of Heaven, in reference to the angelic conflict as to how the integrity of God is being worked out within those congregations. So we must understand that as the overall framework. Now, each of these letters begins with a commission. It's directed to a church, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at uh, Sardis, to the church at Pergamum, church at Thyatira. There's a specific reference to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who holds the seven lamps and walks in the midst of the seven churches in this particular uh, 
address. He is the one who, uh, who has a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. There's a con- commendation where each congregation is praised for particular areas of spiritual advance and spiritual growth. Then there is a condemnation. And this is a warning about a certain spiritual flaw or several spiritual flaws that characterize the congregation. Of course, for it to characterize the congregation, that means that it is something that characterizes the spiritual lives of a number of the members of the congregation. Now, of these seven epistles, two have no commendation. These are extremely flawed congregations. Two have no condemnations. These are extremely mature congregations. But the third one that we're studying, the church in Pergamum, is one that includes all of these sections. The fifth section is a correction, a call to change under the terminology of repentance. And that's what we are looking at most specifically this evening, is that sanctification means change. That's what repentance means. It is critical in our spiritual advance for us to be involved in repentance. Now, we'll get into the details of that as we go along, but we see it highlighted in this particular letter. So there is a call to correction, a command, a call to listen and apply. Those, let those who have ears, let them hear. It is an appeal to those who have a positive volition. And then the seventh section is a challenge, which is a personal promise of reward. Now, when I get through eventually of all of these, and of course we're going to have an interruption as I get into a basic series, but when we finish these, I want to go back and uh, take some time to summarize these, especially in terms of the, the closing section. I think that if we as believers are to take anything of these seven letters... It will have to do with this call to correction at the end and this challenge and the promise to overcomers of what they're going to receive as special privileges and blessings in the millennial kingdom and in heaven. So we'll focus on that. Now this evening what I want to focus on is the main idea of correction that we will run into when we get down to verse 16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It is a mandate to repent. By way of introduction, we've seen that this letter, this third one, is to the church of Pergamum. All seven of these congregations were located on the western end of what is now Turkey. The church at Pergamum was north of the church of Smyrna and Ephesus, which we've looked at already, and it was located about 25 miles inland. And so verse 12 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Verse 13 describes the cultural context. The cultural context was one of hostility to Christianity, hostility to biblical Christianity. There was a tremendous atmosphere of paganism 
in Pergamum. And that's something we have to understand, is that these people lived in an environment where there was more overt hostility expressed toward Christianity than in some of these other locales. And that was because they particularly were a center for the worship of Caesar. And they had erected a temple to the worship of Augustus in 25 B.C., and they were going to, in a few years, erect another temple uh, to the worship of Caesar and to Trajan. But this is the focal point, and everywhere you went, if you were a believer in this culture, you were having some kind of a problem, some tension with the fact that there was so much paganism, overt idolatry, the entire social life, business climate of this city was wrapped around idolatry. So if you were a tradesman, if you were a worker, if you were a uh, domestic servant in someone's home, everywhere you went, there was pressure for you to conform to the religious overtones of this city. It is something that we as Americans are not particularly used to because the pressure here to conform to worldly thinking, which is what this is, the pressure to conform to cosmic thinking in America is much less uh, covert. It is not as overt. Now, in some areas today, it is more overt than in other areas. And in some business climates, in some... uh, uh, some geographical locations in this country, it is much more difficult to live a life in a, a, as an overt Christian because you will be under attack from other people. It may limit you, as a matter of fact, in terms of your uh, advance in business. If you are a school teacher in some areas of this country and it is known that you have a strong commitment to the truth of the Word of God, then that is going to limit you and you are going to have... Uh, enemies within the school system that specific that will specifically target you at any opportunity, and you may have to come under a certain amount of unjust uh, criticism, and you may even have to uh, suffer the loss of a job in an unjust way. I think of an example, not in this country but in Canada, of a school teacher up in uh, I think it was in British Columbia who wrote a letter to the editor uh, because of his concern about the whole issue of same-sex marriage and this uh, move towards tolerance. See, the word tolerance today means to accept or approve something. It doesn't mean just to allow it without condemning it. It means to accept it or approve it. And so we live in a culture that wants us to accept and approve, or where the pressure is for us to accept or approve a homosexual lifestyle. And he wrote a letter to the editor expressing the fact that this was not positive. He didn't write it as a school teacher. He didn't sign it as a school teacher. But he was a school teacher, and he was dismissed from his job, suspended for about 60 days with loss of pay, simply because he expressed his views uh, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was deemed hate speech. And we're moving more and more in that direction every single year. So as believers, we have to learn how to handle that kind of environment. You may not have experienced it to this point, but you will, I believe, before you depart from this life. So the Lord Jesus Christ recognizes their context. He understands the suffering, the oppression, the 
unjust treatment we encounter. He knows the environment. He knows your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. And that is the praise. They held fast to the basic doctrines related to the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And they did not deny my faith, that is, the doctrine related to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in serious persecution, one the life, which cost the life of one Antipas, who is defined and described as my faithful martyr. In verse 14 we read last time, but I have a few things against you. There's a lot of praise for this congregation. There were many wonderful believers there who were learning the Word of God. The doctrine was uh, filling up their soul. They were advancing spiritually. But there's a problem in the overall atmosphere and context of this congregation. You see, every congregation has a culture. Every workplace has a culture. If you've ever held different jobs, you know that if you have a job, even if it's in the same field, if you work with one group of people, then it is characterized by certain things. And if you move over to a different department, different office, a different company, even in the same field, there's a different field to that office. There are different personalities. The managers have different styles. The uh, people who are in upper echelons of authority have different expectations that makes up the the cultures if you have been at this church for a while you realize we're just developing a culture we really haven't gelled we haven't uh, been around long enough to have really developed a an identity a cultural identity of our own if you've been in other congregations especially under different pastors you know that different congregations have different strengths different weaknesses uh, usually they reflect the strengths, the weaknesses of the pastor teacher. But they have these different strengths and weaknesses, and that makes up the culture of that congregation. And even though this congregation had much to praise it, there were two serious flaws in this congregation. And they are identified in verses 14 and 15. The first is that they have their those who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, we studied that last time, and we saw that the phrase teaching of Balaam related to an event in the Old Testament. When, after Balaam had gone through this episode in Numbers 22 through 25, where Balak, the king of Moab, was trying to entice him to curse Israel and God wouldn't let him. It was one of the earliest examples of anti-Semitism. After that, Balaam left, and then he returned, and he sat as an advisor for the kings of this Amorite, Midianite, Moabite coalition, and he said to Balak, look, if you really want to mess up the Jews, this curse thing really isn't the way to handle it. What you need to do is set up a temple with a lot of these good-looking Moabite women as temple prostitutes, and they will entice all of these men in, uh, in Israel to come over and get involved uh, sexually with them, and uh, eventually they're going to intermarry with the Moabites, and the long-term consequence of this is that it will just destroy this religious foundation that, that they have. That's what unifies them, and the whole nation will fall apart at the seams, and you will have your victory, and there won't be anything for you to be worried about. 
So at the very core of this idea was the, the promotion of sexual immorality as a means to destroy the spiritual vitality of the nation Israel. And so when we come to the modern situation in, in Revelation chapter 2, what was going on was there were false teachers in the congregation at Pergamum who were following the same thing. And what they were doing is they were compromising with the pressures from the world system, the idolatrous system around them in their culture, and they were saying, look, don't make a big issue out of some of these things that go on down at the temple. If you just have a relaxed mental attitude, and if you're just really grace-oriented, toward what goes on this temple, get involved a little bit, go to the feast, get involved with the temple prostitutes. It's going to give you more opportunities to witness to people because you're not going to come across as some uh, mean, strict, hard individual that's just not going to have any fun and not going to allow anybody to have any fun. And so they're going to recognize that there's something really valuable. So just, just relax a little bit. Just loosen up a little bit. Just go along with what's happening in the culture and we'll all get along and we won't have to go through all this persecution. So they were promoting this, this involvement with idolatry. John 17 records the Lord Jesus Christ's last prayer on earth before he, or last extended prayer on earth before he went to the cross. Now there was a, more of a prayer on Gethsemane, I'm sure, but this is the one that is recorded for us the last recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that prayer, he makes a number of crucial points that help us to understand the dynamics of the spiritual life in the church age. In John 17:11, he says to the Father a recognition that we as believers are in the world. In John 17:13, as he's talking to the Father, he recognizes that we are not of the world. Now, these prepositions are very important, and this really represents a basic struggle for every Christian down through the ages in the Christian life. Number one, we're in the world. Number two, we're not of the world. And there have been all manner of distortions based on these two principles down through the ages. There have been the ascetics back in the third and fourth century who tried to separate from the world. These were the ones that were promoting. Uh, monasticism and they were promoting asceticism and it's the idea that if we just separate out from the world then we will be able to uh, advance spiritually and we will be better spiritually than anybody else and then there are others who go to the other extreme like the believers in uh, Pergamum and well let's not make this separation from the world so obvious Let's not make it so overt, and we can live and rub shoulders with everybody, and we can basically have lives that aren't too different from everyone around us, and then Christianity will be much more acceptable to them. After all, we don't want to be viewed as people that are strange, people that are uh, somehow uh, portrayed as separatistic and outdated values and backward and you know all the things that the modern media uses to to define Christianity and the things that we run into uh, so often in the workplace and on the college or university campus 
that Christians are just backward and all the other things that go with it. So there's that pressure there to, to kind of assimilate, to, to, uh, to hide in the midst of everybody else because we don't want to be thought of as something strange or, or weird. But the Bible says that we are to not be in or not be of the world. We're in the world. That means we operate among those who are hold to a worldly view of life. And the Bible uses the word cosmos to refer to that, which is this system of thinking that dominates that dominates the culture around us. So every culture is different. If you are European, you have different aspects to your worldliness. If you're Asian, then there are other aspects to your worldliness. If you're South American, Hispanic, there are other aspects to your worldliness. So each culture has different uh, aspects, different ways in which cosmic thinking is expressed. But wherever you are, the principle of Romans 12, verse 2, comes into play. Do not be conformed to the thinking of this age. And here the word is I own. The most translations translate, don't be conformed to the world. But see, it's a a different word there. It's not cosmos, it's ion. And ion is used when it's talking about the dominant characteristics of an age as opposed to emphasizing the orderly nature of that which characterizes people living in the world. It just... Two different ways of looking at the same thing. So Paul says, don't be conformed to the thinking of this age. In contrast, we are to be transformed by the renovation of your thinking, the changing of your mind. The Greek word there is nous, which has to do with the intellectual dimension of your life. We are to be transformed by renewing what goes on in our head. You see, what goes on in your head dictates what goes on in your life. It's not the other way around. You don't learn new habit patterns and then somehow changes the way you think. You have to change the way you think before you change the way you live. But notice the dominant word that I keep using is change. See, I don't know what it is, but for for a lot of us, when you first become a believer, you're resistant to change. You're, you're sort of glad the Lord's going to clean some things up in your life, but there are a lot of things in your life that you're pretty happy with and pretty comfortable with, and you really don't want the Lord to, to mess too much with those things. And that's the way it is with a lot of folks. But what happens is you begin to grow as a believer. The Lord, through the Spirit and the Word of God, is going to change your thinking. That's what Romans 12:2 is all about. Transforming, metamorpho completely overhauling your thinking. Now, how does that happen? Well, first of all, I think that you have to think about it. Now, right then, you know that this is going to run counter to the whole trend of our age today because we live in an era when people really don't want to think for any number of reasons, depending on their background, but people just don't want to think. They want to emote, they want to feel good, they want to have psychological transformation, whatever that may be. If you look at certain books today that talk about spirituality, that's how they define it. It's sort of a psychological well-being, a sense of stability, a sense of happiness, uh, getting rid of certain uh, negative emotions like anger, hatred, so you're just not so uptight. You know, you've got to loosen up and just relax 
as you go through life. And they define that as spirituality. But what the Bible says is you've got to change your thinking. And so change is at the heart of spiritual growth. Now, I want to think about that a little bit tonight. Change is at the heart of our spiritual growth. That means that we have certain thought patterns, that we have certain beliefs within that thought pattern as unbelievers that are very comfortable to us. We have certain beliefs, certain ideas that we picked up from parents, that you picked up from your peers, that you picked up from your teachers along the way, And some of these things you've absorbed into your own personal worldview, your own personal philosophy of life, and you've operated on these things because they help you solve problems, face challenges in life, deal with certain relationships, and yet they are products of cosmic thinking and human viewpoint, and they are not products of the Word of God. And the process of spiritual growth is the process of identifying these things in our souls and marking them for destruction and replacing them with principles from the Word of God. And that's not an easy process. It takes the entirety of our life from the moment you're saved to the moment you die to go through that. And sometimes we feel when we get within a couple of years of the time we die, we look back and we say, you know, Lord, I've been studying the Word, I've been applying doctrine for 50 years, and I'm still struggling with this problem of impatience. I'm still wrestling with this issue of of sins of the tongue or or whatever your personal weaknesses may be. And I'm convinced that that what happens is that, that as we grow, we just become more and more aware of how profound this sin is in our life and how deep it is. So if you've got a problem with applying impersonal love to people who have really mistreated you, guess what? It's not going to go away by the time you're 70 or 80. You may improve a tremendous amount, but that's, that's, that's the trend of your sin nature. And you're, it's not going to be completely removed because there's no such thing as perfection in this life. But what you have to recognize is you can't just sit back and say, well, you know, that's just my area of weakness We're just going to have to go with the flow here because I can't change. Change is the whole issue of spiritual growth. And it's not not difficult, folks. As the old adage goes, the spiritual life isn't difficult. It's impossible. It can only be accomplished when you're walking by the Holy Spirit because the spiritual life is a supernatural life that can only be accomplished through the power of God. We can't do it on our own. You can't grow up spiritually by just reaching down and pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps. And this is the way 99% of Christians and theologians approach the Christian life. They're trying to improve themselves using the same principles that everybody else in the world is using. That's why if you listen to 98% of the preachers that are on television what you realize is what they're saying isn't any different from somebody like Tony Robbins. You know, he's one of those big self-help, self-improvement gurus. It's, it's the same thing. What will happen is most preachers take that material and they wrap it in a couple of Bible verses so it sounds like it's biblical. But it's just another form of false teaching, another form of idolatry. And what this passage in, in dealing with this letter to the per- Pergamanians is saying is that we can't assimilate 
with the dominant teaching of paganism around us. Wherever you are, whatever century, whatever decade, whatever culture you're on, you're in, you are surrounded by various forms of human viewpoint thought or what we sometimes refer to as paganism or just cosmic thinking. And you've grown up with that. And the process of sanctification is to be transformed by the overhaul or the renovation of your thinking. And in that process, maturity takes place. And then our life demonstrates something. It becomes a, a, a proof of something. It's dokimazo again, that same word that's used about the revealing of our uh, divine good at the judgment seat of Christ. It is an evaluation term that we may evaluate and demonstrate the will of God, that it is three things, good, acceptable, and perfect. But the point I'm making from Romans 12:2 is that the core of spiritual advance is change, not change for change's sake, not change where you're doing it in the power of your own flesh and ability, but it is a change that is supernaturally empowered by God the Holy Spirit, and it's based on something that is even more profound, and that's the Word of God. See, what's at the core of this is a change of thinking. Now, you, that doesn't happen overnight. It's very difficult to change our thinking. In fact, as a pastor, what I've noticed is that, that every now and then I'll get, uh, have people make comments and say, you know, this is just awfully heavy. You know, this is, I, I had to listen to that tape four times to understand it. The academics here are just too academic. They're just too, too intense. And I say, well, you know, when the Bible says you have to change the way you think, that's difficult. It means you have to think. You can't come here and emote. You can't come here and just give you eight principles on how to live something in the Christian life or eight principles on this or that or the other thing and just go home and do it because I've told you what to believe and what to do. See, it's more profound than that. We have to learn how to think. It's not just a matter of knowing what to do, but why to do it. What's the rationale? Because if I remember when I was in seminary, I used to get so frustrated. Uh, so, so much of what goes on in preaching classes, I think, lends itself to superficial preaching. And what they'll tell you to do, I remember one, one particular one particular professor who's always had extremely large churches and had a well, well-known pastor in a number of contexts and a very good communicator, Ph.D. from UCLA in, in uh, communication. And he said what he did on, Sunday, on Saturday night was he would go into the auditorium of the church. This just sounds so holy, it's almost nauseating. But he would go into the church and he would walk up and down the aisle and he would think about who sat here and who sat there? Now, now I'm going to teach this or preach this, and how do they need to apply it? And how do they need to apply it? And how about this person over here? And how might it be applied in their life? And while there may be a certain level of value in that, the problem with it is you're restricting the Holy Spirit because you're limiting those applications to your own frame of reference. And see, what needs to be taught are principles that the Holy Spirit can apply to everybody. I certainly don't of intellect or knowledge to be able to think my way through the problems in your soul. I can just teach you what the Word of God says. And I'd rather teach the general principles and have you learn them and let the Holy Spirit take those principles and apply them in your life, in your soul, and produce that change. And that's a harder process. It's more difficult for people. 
in ways, what, in what I'm doing is I want you to engage your mind when you come to class and think about why the Lord has told us to do things a certain way and to think a certain way. Because, see, you're going to go out and you're going to run into all kinds of situations in life that I can't possibly know about ahead of time. And you're going to have to have the flexibility under the leading of the Holy Spirit to take that universal principle and apply it to that situation. And you have to learn to think to do that because life just can't be fit in these rigid little boxes that some people want to put them in. Life is incredibly complex and challenging, and we face all manner of dimensions of problems. But if we understand the principles and why they work, not just what they are, but why they work, and how to think through things, then we're able to apply doctrine in, a, in, in ways that are much more effective in terms of our own spiritual growth. And, of course, this comes about through through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, the key idea here is understanding worldliness. And this is the problem in Pergamum, and it's the problem for every believer. And that is that we live in, in the context of a world system that is pressuring us to think in ways that aren't biblical. And if you understand that, then you understand the whole concept underlying the spiritual advance and sanctification. So let's just go through, through, through a few points to break this down. First of all, worldliness is a synonym for pagan thought, human viewpoint, or the thinking of Satan. Those three terms are synonyms. Pagan thought. Now, it, the strict dictionary definition of paganism is thinking that is not biblically based. This isn't a pejorative term. It's not an insult. It's not calling somebody a witch. It's just saying, look, you don't think in a biblical manner. And that's true of every single unbeliever. The day before you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you didn't know anything about the Bible whatsoever, you were a rank pagan. The day after you were saved, you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, adopted into the royal family of God, and you thought like a pagan because you hadn't been taught any doctrine. Even if you understood establishment principles, you understood them within the context of a pagan framework. You didn't have a biblical framework. And let me tell you, marriage, even if you are pro-marriage and pro-family as a Mormon, think about this. If you are pro-marriage and pro-family as a Mormon, Ultimately, I will tell you, your concept of family and marriage is not the concept of family and marriage that I'm talking about within a biblical framework. There may be similarities. There may be areas of overlap, but they're not the same. Sure, as an unbeliever, you're going to have a certain amount of social stability, and you're going to be able to pass on a certain amount of moral uh, values and ethics to the next generation because uh, to some degree you're holding on to a concept of marriage and family that derives from the Bible, that is borrowed from biblical truth, but it's not the same. You do know that in, 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 uh, in Utah that the average age that a woman gets divorced is, has her first divorce is 18, don't you? Think about that. See, see, they have this facade of holding to marriage, but they don't because in Mormon, Mormon theology, a woman can't get to heaven unless she's 
has a husband who can call her forth from the grave. So you see, it's elements like that that enter into their doctrine of marriage that change it. But that's getting into another point. Worldliness, though, is just a synonym for pagan thought. And there's all kinds of pagan thoughts. There's religious thoughts. There's philosophical thinking. Everything. There's anything that's not biblical is pagan. We also call it human viewpoint, and it represents the thinking of Satan. Second point. All worldliness is built on the foundation of Satan's thought. All worldliness is built on the foundation of Satan's thought, and those two elements are arrogance and antagonism. Just remember that alliteration, arrogance and antagonism. It's arrogance which promotes self and antagonism which attacks God. Arrogance and antagonism. And everything develops out of that. Everything that you go to in every single one of these systems, whether they're philosophical systems, whether they're religious systems, whether they're cult systems, whether they're just secular humanistic systems, every one of them is built on the importance of man as man apart from God and that we don't really have to do it God's way. And that was evident in the Garden of Eden. There is an arrogance there that, that Eve wants to be her own God. She, that's the temptation. Take eat of this fruit and you'll be like God. That's arrogance. And it's an antagonism to God because it's a disobedience of God's command. That at the core of her thinking was the idea is God's wrong because, and I'm not going to die when I eat this fruit. At some level, she was believing that that was true. Otherwise, she wouldn't have eaten it. So what, that the core of her problem was a thought problem. That means to, in the correction process, you have to learn to think. Third point, worldliness thus is a way of thinking about various things. The first is ultimate reality. I say ultimate reality because every system has some view of ultimate reality. If you're talking about uh, Darwinistic evolution, pure naturalistic evolution, ultimate reality is the whatever there was before the Big Bang. It's just some concentrated ma- uh, mass out and floating through space, but there's no ultimate personality. It's just matter in some form. It's a way of thinking about uh, ultimate reality. If you're a Buddhist, you have another way of thinking about ultimate reality. If you're a Muslim, you have a different way of thinking about ultimate reality. If you are a mystic, you have another way of understanding reality. So worldliness is a way of thinking about ultimate reality. It's a way of thinking about life. What is life? Where did it come from? What is its value? How do we make decisions related to the taking of life or the ending of life? Uh, When does life begin? When does life end? Uh, This affects issues related to abortion. It relates to issues related to medical ethics, issues related to war. Uh, all Every worldly system deals with these things. Problems, personal problems. How do you handle problems in your life? What is the... What is the overall framework that you utilize for problem solving when you have problems at work, problems with your uh, co-workers, personal problems, problems with your boss, when you have to deal with various uh, system problems that you end, end up being the brunt of and getting the worst of? How do you deal with problems? How do you deal with marriage problems? How do you deal with problems with your children? I remember when I first went into the pastoral ministry, a pastor said, Robbie, what are you going to do? And you get a phone call at 10 o'clock 
on a Saturday night and it's the chairman of your deacons or your elders and their uh, 14-year-old just got arrested for uh, selling heroin and they're in jail downtown. And he didn't know that I knew this, but I knew the, I, I knew the man he was thinking about because it turned out that he, he, he had used that example from a real-life situation and it was, a, it was a son of a man that I had gone to church with. He didn't even know I had gone to that church, but I remember that particular situation. That happens. How do you handle that as a parent? How do you handle that as a friend of that family? How do you deal with those problems? How do you deal with the issues related to your ultimate destiny? Now, where are you headed? All this deals with worldliness, and worldliness can incorporate religions. It can incorporate philosophies. All of these make up worldliness. So, worldly, fourth point, worldliness today is characterized by either rationalism and empiricism, and that's what you get on the secular humanist side, the evolutionists, the so-called uh, skeptics, uh, scientists, people who say, well, there is no God. Uh, I believe in religion if I could see it, taste it, touch it. I believe in the resurrection of Christ if I could, if I could touch it. That's why Thomas had that little episode in uh, uh, the Gospel of John. And so the he would represent all of those empiricists who wanted empirical data for the uh, resurrection. Or mysticism. And mysticism enters into the life of the church in many different ways. In fact, numerous Christian denominations today are buying into all kinds of different forms of mysticism. I've been appalled for the last 15 years to witness the resurrection of fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh century mystical literature in, in the life of the church today. You can go down to Christian bookstores and you can pick up all kinds of, of uh, books from fourth century mystics all the way up through mi- the late Middle Ages. And these are becoming very popular today. And churches that, and denominations that 20 or 30 years ago would never have had anybody read this. Uh, these writers are having them read this now for a greater spirituality. And mysticism enters into all kinds of, of areas. Also, we have various systems of thought that reflect worldliness, such as Darwinistic evolution, humanistic psychology, uh, various forms of sociology are used as standards for behavior, uh, works, religions, and moral relativism. We live in a culture today where moral relativism is so dominant that most of us in this room are more impacted by moral relativism than we're willing to admit. Because that's the culture we grew up breathing. And that was the same situation that occurred with the Church of Pergamum. These people who are being influenced by the teaching of Balaam, who are basically following the same footsteps of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, are relativists. They're licentious. They're antinomian. They're saying, well, let's just go along and practice, go through these overt practices. Actually, these, we know these things have no reality. So what does it hurt if we uh, involve ourselves with these practices and these temples and it just lessens the political pressure against us? And that's the problem. Jesus says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, specifically to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, this ran completely contrary to what was, and let me skip through a couple of slides here, what was taught in, at the, what was called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, verses 20 and 29. The Jerusalem Council took place in, in Jerusalem with the disciples, the apostles, and some of the other leaders of the church when Paul came back from his first missionary journey and said, hey, there's a lot of Gentiles out there who are becoming believers. And they had a big discussion about this. What's the role of Gentiles in the church now? And the conclusion from their, their council was that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. In verse 29, Acts 15, 29, they, they wrote to them saying that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. See, the principle is that these were practices that were part of the religious structure of the culture around them. And so they were admonished to stay away from these things. Now, this is different from the meat sacrificed to idols in, in, in Corinth. The Corinthian issue had to do with meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but then it was brought out into the meat market and sold at the local grocery store. This is different. In Acts 15 and in uh, Revelation 2 in Pergamum, the issue is that they were going and participating in the feasts that took place in the temple. And they were also participating in the uh, ritual prostitution that characterized uh, the various fertility religions that were dominant in uh, Greece at that time. And so they, were, they had adopted this antinomian attitude that it's okay, we'll just relax. We'll have this grace-oriented attitude towards this. But that's not grace orientation. You see, God deals with us in grace because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. But he doesn't wink at the sin in our life. There's such a thing as divine discipline for sin. It doesn't cost us our eternal salvation. But when we get involved in extended carnality, then the Lord Jesus Christ lowers the boom and the Father disciplines us on an ongoing basis in order to get us to get back to 1 John 1, 9, confess our sins and move forward. And that's the process of sanctification. It is the process of exchanging that antinomian thought that is present in Pergamum for divine viewpoint. And that's what comes up in verse 16. Therefore, drawing a conclusion from the passage, this is the Greek word un, which draws a conclusion or inference from the previous statements. Therefore, because you have this attitude of approval and acceptance. See, it wasn't just that they had folks in the congregation that did this. See, every congregation has folks in the congregation that are involved in sins, and, uh, you know, the Lord's going to deal with that, and it's not the job for the rest of us to straighten everybody out. But when it reaches a point where you have a clique in the congregation that is saying, look, we just go along to get along, you know, there's nothing wrong with this, and they're, they're creating a culture of licentiousness and antinomianism in the congregation, then it's time to deal with it. So the Lord says that they are to repent. And this is the Greek word metanoeo. It's an aorist active imperative, and the aorist imperative means it's a priority. Do it now. And it means to change your thinking. 
don't buy into the thought that says that it's okay to just get involved with this and then you'll confess your sins later and it'll all be okay. There has to be a line drawn somewhere to where you don't get involved in paganism. You can't think like a pagan as a Christian. At least not go anywhere in your Christian life. There has to be a change. And that's the focal point here. That's the focal point of Romans 12 too. There has to be a change. We have to quit thinking like unbelievers. So uh, repentance means to change your thinking. Just a few points in closing. First of all, this is a change from human viewpoint thinking or, or sinful thinking to divine viewpoint. As a believer, as you grow and you learn the Word of God and the Holy Spirit fills up your soul with the Word of God, you get divine viewpoint. And when you're in fellowship, the issue is, are you going to continue to follow divine viewpoint, or are you going to shift over and try to handle life's problems with human viewpoint? When you shift to human viewpoint, that's always a shift to, to the control of the sin nature. Second, repentance. Let's just get this definition aspect out of the way. It's not remorse or sorrow. This isn't emotion. Now, you may be emotional at times, but it's not primarily emotion. You may be, be real sorry that uh, you committed some sin. You may be real sorry that you're going to go through the divine discipline. You may be real sorry that you got caught. But that's not confession. Confession, and that's not the key to confession. Confession is simply admission of guilt. Repentance is not remorse or sorrow. It is a change of mind. So this change of mind, point number three, this change begins with confession. Repentance doesn't equal confession, but it starts with confession. Repentance means to change your thinking about something. Well, if, you, if you've grown up in a certain environment and you've handled certain situations through your own human viewpoint, self-reliance, and then you become a believer, and then after a while you realize that the way you've handled this problem is completely wrong, it's self-reliance instead of God-dependence, now you have to confess that. So you say, Lord, I, I've committed this sin, and you identify the sin, you're back in fellowship. But you see, repentance hasn't fully taken place yet because the next time the situation comes up, what happens? You fall back on the old, comfortable, human viewpoint habit pattern. Now you've got to confess your sin, but repentance takes place when you begin to change the thinking and you realize after you're in fellowship, I have to think differently about how I handle the problem. So repentance can take the rest of your life to fully actuate. It's not an easy thing. It takes time to, to make that new thinking part of your habit. Some things come easier than other things. Some things you can change your thinking pretty rapidly. Other things may not. Some people think that the way, best way to handle a problem is to just lose their temper and get angry and intimidate everybody. Thirty years down the road, they may still be doing that at times. See, it's, it's not an instantaneous act. There's no one-shot decision in the Christian life. So point number four, repentance, though, is more than confession. It starts with confession. But repentance is changing your thinking. And that takes time. It takes learning doctrine. It takes, it's the principle of abiding in Christ. See, the issue at confession isn't just getting back in fellowship. It's staying there, folks. It's staying in fellowship is where spiritual growth takes place. It's not just saying, oh, I'm going to be in fellowship until the next temptation comes along and then it's easier just to yield to it and then confess my sin than it is to go through the problem of re-educating myself and thinking differently and applying it 
and going through that and, and actually being nice to those sorry, lousy uh, people who always treat me bad and, and, and being nice to them because of what Jesus Christ did for me, that takes time. But under the Holy Spirit, it's possible. Point number five, repentance involves that change of pagan human viewpoint worldliness in our soul for divine viewpoint of Bible doctrine. We're going to start interacting with the issues in life on the basis of Bible doctrine and what it says when we're in fellowship rather than the easy way, which is following the trends of our sin nature. And point number six, repentance uh, of some thought forms, let's change the wording there, repentance of some thought forms can be a lifetime process because some things are just deeply ingrained in us. They're habit patterns. It's part of our sin nature. We're never going to get rid of it. See, some Christians just get so uptight about the fact that 25 years after they got saved, they still struggle with the same sin. Well, that's reality. That's the great thing about grace, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, understand that. The issue is forward momentum. We're never going to be perfect. So you, on the one hand, you don't get all bent out of shape over the sin that easily besets us, Hebrews 12.2. But on the other hand, you don't just rationalize it and justify it and say, well, it's just too difficult. I'm just going to uh, follow that trend and then confess it later. See, that's become licentiousness. And that was the problem here in Pergamum, is that they, had, they, they just wanted to go along instead of establishing a point of resistance and making it clear that they were going to think biblically they had capitulated to licentiousness and antinomianism, and they were just going to go along to get along. But the command is to repent, to change your thinking, or there will be consequences. And the negative consequences are listed in verse 16. But if you repent and have that victory over those sins and advance and grow in the Christian life, then there are specific rewards and privileges And those are outlined in verse 17. So we'll get into the negatives and the positives of verse 16 and 17 next Sunday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the teaching that we find here, the challenge to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to not to be conformed to the thinking of this world, to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, and to abide in Christ. Father, it's not easy, but always easy, but it is the direct, correct route. Father, we pray for those here this evening who may not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who may be unsure and uncertain of their eternal destiny. Father, we pray that right now they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The key to salvation isn't repentance, remorse, isn't feeling sorry for your sins, getting involved in religious ritual or any other uh, practice of works. It is simply trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid it all. All that is left for you to do is to trust and rely on him. The instant you trust in him, you have eternal salvation. Omniscient God knows what you are trusting for your salvation And at that instant, you are saved. And that salvation can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this evening and that you would help us to put them into practice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.